Welcome to From the Heart with Daniel Groom, he, him, and Don Lister, she, her. A podcast from Anahata Yoga Centre, where we hold insightful, healing, and nurturing conversations with inspiring people from healing yoga and well-being communities. Enjoy our podcast. Hi, this is Don, she, her. Today, Daniel and I are chatting with Andy Wishstrike. Welcome, Andy. Hi there, Don. Thank you for welcoming me. It's so good to have you. I'm very excited to have this conversation about Buddhism with you. But before we start talking about one of my favorite subjects, let's check in with how we all are. So, Daniel, how are you? What have you been up to? Tell me what's going on. I am very well, thank you, Dawn. It's lovely to be here today. Um, Actually, today is still a bit of a sad day for me. I've been reminiscing a bit with my dad because um, we were huge Rolling Stones fans and we were really sad to hear that Charlie Watts had died um, yesterday mm -hmm. evening. Um, me and my dad got the pleasure to see the Rolling Stones quite a few times. Um, best one was in Hyde Park when they did that massive 80,000 people concert. <laughs> but yeah, just really really appreciative of their music and you know putting the uk on the map in terms of you know sort of 60s onwards rock music um yeah so me and my dad were sharing photos of when we went to see the stones and posting our favorite songs and yeah just generally reminiscing so it's been a, been a sad but happy day <laughs> oh it's, it was sad watching that on the news last night. I was just, I, I'd, I've not really um, followed the Rolling Stones. I probably would know a song if um, someone told me what it was, but I haven't. I'm not. He, he seemed like a real gentleman, that kind of quite dapper. I think is the word. Yeah, I would agree. Yeah, I think, I think I don't know. There, there, there is something about. I suppose it's to do with music. A, a lot of my musical influence comes from my dad so mm. when there was bands that we really connected with so the rolling stones and stevie wonder are the two bands that we both absolutely or you know performers that we absolutely love and yeah it's been a real pleasure as an adult to be able to experience both of them with my dad you know and i mm. think you know it, it, yeah just just those memories and I think their music's so ingrained in sort of UK society isn't it you know because it was such a turning point the 60s for the UK mm -hmm. and for the rest of the world really wasn't it you know so mm -hmm. yeah yeah it was it's been lovely to reflect upon that and just yeah share those experiences again. Oh sounds like you had a life well lived. Well I'm sure he, I'm sure he had an interesting life. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I've been I've just been to the I've been to the sea for a swim still just got um covered in seaweed literally it's very choppy thrown around not a great swimmer so I kind of paddle around to stay near the near the um the seawall but I literally it was so choppy I kept getting thrown against the wall every now and then I was amazing there's so many people where we live in um Leon Sea um there's so many people swim don't, don't they Daniel it's just uh 
it's just a, a real um, community thing. And I, I've just invested in a, one of those changing robes because I kept flashing my bits when I was getting changed afterwards. <laughs> and poor so-and-so's, as I'm trying to get out my wet, wet cosy with my towel wrapped around me, I've got an eye full of things we didn't need to see. So I bought myself one of those changing robes to um, change into when I come out. But I really, I'm really enjoying it. I'm going to try and do it all the way through winter this year, I think. There's an auntie getting changed on the beach, isn't there, without flashing anybody? <laughs> I have not mastered this. The the art the art gets even more defined when you're freezing cold in the middle of February and you can't feel anything. <laughs> you have you done it in February? Have yeah. you it? You have. Yeah, I started in February. I start. I was like, if I if I'm doing this, it's going to be the hardest month that I start it. I don't know why. It's maybe there's something in my psyche around that, but um. Yeah, when you can't feel your body or you can't feel anything touching you. <laughs> it's a whole new experience. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm going to try. I'm going to try and do it. I, swear, I am definitely feeling the benefits to my health. Um, so, yeah, I did my little swim. And I came home and did a half-hour yoga nidra before this. It's really very virtuous. So, welcome, Andy. Let's hear how you are. What have, what's been going on for you off late? Tell us how things are. Okay. Um, well, on Saturday it was um, mine and my wife's fortieth wedding anniversary. Ah, and We went away. We live in in South Somerset, so we went away to Linton on the North Devon coast for a couple of nights. And although the weather wasn't brilliant, it didn't actually spoil it. Um, so we had a really lovely time. Um, which was good and it was very reviving and we came back on Sunday with just an hour and a half before we had a gathering at our place of our local Buddhist group that hasn't met face to face since before COVID mm. and that was so emotional it's really hard to express um, it, it was a three hour session and People brought, um, you know, food and drink, and we had we supplied all the tea, so lots of tea was drunk, and we set up a circle of chairs and also some cushions in the garden, and um, the sun was out, but we were in the shade of a tree because it was actually a bit hot in the sun as it is today, mm -hmm. and um, we started. Shan led a that Shan's my wife. She led a. A quite a long meditation for about half an hour, which was very powerful. Um, I suppose you could say it was the main topic, love and compassion, let's say. And um, yeah, I think really heart, heartwarming, heart opening kind of meditation. And then we had a round, taking it in turns going round, just to talk about what had been our inner experience as a result of the pandemic, not not so much talking about the nuts and bolts of what had happened in our life outside, but what has it done for us internally? And it was different for everybody, as you'd expect. And it was really, really interesting. And it built a sort of a sense of a group picture of, mm. of what we've been through. And I suppose in many ways we're still in. So that was Sunday afternoon, early evening. And then Monday, I got up at the very, very early, it was still dark, in order to do my morning practice before catching six o'clock train to London, 
um, for the Extinction Rebellion. And I'm part of Extinction Rebellion Buddhists. So we tend, we tend to have our own kind of actions which involve meditating. So for instance, yesterday morning, uh, I was there with the group meditating outside the BP headquarters in central London, uh, you know, to protest about the continued new exploration for oil, which is, as everybody knows, is contributing towards the destruction of life on earth. Um, so our protests are very silent. And, mm -hmm. and, and very grounded because we sit on cushions on, you know, I was sitting on a cushion, but on the pavement. So that, that was a powerful experience. I only got back yesterday late afternoon and then went into our regular Buddhist course, which we normally hold on Tuesday evenings, uh, where we're studying traditional texts from, in this case, uh, from ancient India. And, uh, but we're sort of studying them in terms of our life and making meaning for our life. So it's been quite an intense few days, is my answer to your main question. And here I am on Wednesday, actually having a bit of a breather. <laughs> so it's quite nice. I feel quite relaxed today. Thank you so much for making the time. It's, it's interesting you mentioned Extinction Rebellion. It's um, I was working with a client yesterday who's a big part of Extinction Rebellion in this area, and he travels and he was kind of trying to persuade me to come and join the protests next i think there's something going on for about a week or something isn't there it's two weeks two weeks started on monday and i've never been uh, much of a protester because i don't love crowds but i after watching the news over the summer yeah. i kind of feel like i have to <laughs> i kind of feel like i can't do nothing it feels like doing nothing almost feels like actively doing something to support climate change like that's just my experience i know that's i'm not saying that's everybody's experience it's how i feel and um so i think i'm going to take myself off to a, a protest and and it's, it's an interesting thing isn't it because i was having the conversation with my husband and saying you know i don't know how much good protesting does but i don't feel like i can do nothing yeah well i'm yeah, the same like, i'm yeah. exactly the same you know, I don't, when I'm doing it, I don't feel that actually it's going to save the world. I'll be honest. I have um, I have quite a pessimistic notion about where we're heading. But mm. like, just like you said, I feel I have to do something. Mm. And in a way, I only just dip my big toe in, frankly. I mean, mm. you know, I know people who are there for a week or two weeks, but in my case, I can only handle a day and a half. I, that's what I did last year, and that's what I'm do, I did just now, because it's so intense. And like you, I have a difficulty with crowds. I mean, I can be in a crowd, but only for a short time. Then I have to sort of pull back. Yesterday mm -hmm. afternoon, I was with a big crowd in Leicester Square, and they were, everybody was doing this samba drumming and everything. It was very mm -hmm. intense, and I just had to kind of gradually mm -hmm. pull back, and eventually just went back to the station to come home. But no, I, I feel. I feel there's lots of ways of doing something, though. You don't mm -hmm. have to go on a protest. I mean, I just feel that we're all we're all complicit, and in a, in a certain way, we're all responsible for the future. Mm. Especially, you know, and and not just the future, even the present. There's mm. a lot of suffering going down now, isn't there, with all the fires mm. and stuff? Mm. And we all know about it. That's the other thing. It's not like mm. it's hidden. 
maybe it was yeah. but now it's not it's not and it's um it's hitting people who um are wealthier south it's of france to, so you know the minute it starts hitting people where who's who've got a bit of money and have got a bit of power then you start to see things changing which is entirely wrong but that is kind of what tends to happen isn't it i hope so yeah. well i'm sure this will I made this in my notes to discuss um, the environment within our within the discussion wider topic of Buddhism. So let's let's um, speak about that. Let's start with tell us uh, about what is Buddhism. Um, what what's the tradition of Buddhism that you follow? Maybe explain a little bit about what a tradition is versus a, a religion, or if they're the same. Maybe you could just talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Okay. Um... So, yeah, there's many ways into this, but I suppose it's quite good to start with Buddha's basic teaching, which is called the Four Noble Truths, in order to understand what Buddhism is. So the first is the truth of suffering. And it, it's quite hard for us to face our suffering, in, uh, to acknowledge our suffering, I would say. We'd rather do anything to divert our attention from it, mm -hmm. including going down various roads that create even more suffering, um, <laughs> just in order to, we, we think we can escape, but the truth is that we do suffer. And so the first, the starting point, in my opinion, for Buddhism is the acknowledgement of one's own suffering. Mm -hmm. So it could be physical, it could be emotional, it could be existential. There's lots of different aspects to suffering, but for example, we all have to die. So mm -hmm. that in itself is a form of suffering because it's quite rare for someone to want to die. And if they do want to die, well, that's a sign that, that their life is suffering anyway. So yeah, that's the starting point. But then the next point is, well, what is the origin or cause of suffering? So then the Buddha helps us to analyze very, very deeply into uh, how we came to be in this situation where suffering is, is the sort of core of our life in a way, or it's, it's the reality of our life. Um, and so that analysis is really important. Then, so these, these are the first two of the four, and these ones are, the, are the, like the dark side, if you like. The third one is called the cessation of suffering. So this is where it flips into actually the possibility of being free not just temporarily free, but totally free. Now that is something which most people wouldn't even consider a possibility. There's a, you know, there's a sort of thought, well, of course, suffering is part of life. Let's just get on with it, shall we? Let, don't go on about it rather than, yeah, anyway. So, so the possibility of um, the cessation of suffering and its causes because the, the suffering is the first and the causes are the second. And the third one is the possibility of being free from both those. And then the fourth one is the path to the cessation of suffering. In other words, the, the means to, to achieve the third one. So the Buddha taught these right at the beginning of his teaching. The Buddha lived about, about two and a half thousand years ago in Northern India. And having become enlightened himself, which is something maybe not everybody completely understands what is enlightenment, but it's 
one way of defining it is it's free from any limitation. It's the full maximizing the full potential of the mind that each of us has. We all have the potential to be enlightened. That's the point. And the Buddha found that and then later explained it. And to explain it started with what I've just described, the Four Noble Truths. So if you ask, well, what is Buddhism? It's really all that. And, and obviously unpacking it and going into it and understanding it, but also starting to practice it. Because the fourth one, the path, is about what you actually do. And it's also about what you achieve, not only at the end, but also along the way. So it's about self-transformation. So that's, yeah, maybe, maybe that's kind of, I'll leave that as a sort of starting point of what Buddhism is. And now you mentioned the word religion, which is quite useful. And also you asked about my tradition. So um, I get, because I, I follow um, the Tibetan Buddhist tradition, but anyway, most Buddhists and even a lot of non-Buddhists acknowledge the Dalai Lama as a great teacher, somebody that, you know, they kind of trust what he, what, what does the Dalai Lama say, you know? <laughs> so one thing that the Dalai Lama has said is that Buddhism can be divided into three parts. The first one is Buddhist science, which is a Buddhist explanation of all kinds of things which science, modern science also deals with, like the nature of matter or the nature of a person or the nature of the universe or, you know, the, the passage of time and there's so many different things in that so that's the first buddhist science the second one is buddhist philosophy and that includes things about like how the mind works what you know even most people don't even know what a mind is you know they think it's just some kind of outpost of the brain but from a buddhist point of view the brain is just an instrument that the mind uses so what is the mind for goodness sake so first of all what is it and then well how does it work and you know how do we can we change it how do we transform it what effect does that have on our life blah 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 so buddhist philosophy is like that this that's part of it another part of it is what is the nature of reality you know what is truth what is there is there truth and if so what is it um, or what, another way of putting that is, what is the, the what is the nature of things, or what is the nature of me, this person here? Because we make all sorts of assumptions about that based on how things appear to us. But Buddhism teaches us how to go deeper and analyze and see that it's not at all the way it appears. In fact, in certain respects, it's the opposite of how it appears. And so that's very important for realizing the cessation of suffering, because the root of suffering, according to Buddhism, is the ignorance of misconceiving reality. In other words, mis mistakenly thinking reality is one way, whereas actually it's the opposite. So that is all very interesting, and that's all Buddhist philosophy. The third one, according to the Dalai Lama, is Buddhist religion. The Buddhist religion includes things like devotion, like devotion to the Buddha or devotion to one spiritual teacher, 
such as in my case, one of my spiritual teachers is the Dalai Lama. So I practice devotion towards the, the Dalai Lama. But it, and then that includes all kinds of things like making offerings or, you know, various practices that we do, which an outsider would definitely look at it and say, oh, that's religious. And I can understand that. It makes sense. It's not, that's not weird to me. But one thing that the Dalai Lama made very clear is that you don't have to have the whole package. So there are a lot of people in the world now who don't want religion mm. for various good and possibly sometimes mistaken reasons, but often very good reasons because they've been put off it because they see it as dogmatic and imposing and mystifying and trying to get you to believe in something that you don't really believe in and you know all sorts of stuff like that so the Dalai Lama said no you can have the you can have Buddhist science Buddhist philosophy without the religion or you can just have the philosophy without the science and the religion. you know in other words you can it's up to the individual and that's that's another thing about Buddhism which I would like to say in in other religious traditions particularly there's a repository of truth which is often in a book a particular book or the words of some great person in buddhism it's not like that the buddha himself said do not do not follow my words just because i say them test them the way you would test gold if you were going to buy some gold in other words, find out if they're true or fake before you follow them. And what this means in practice is that we are each responsible for the way we look at life and the world and, and also for what we do. And of course, according to Buddhism, because of karma, we are also responsible for what happens to us at a certain level. And that is quite difficult to accept because mm. we always want to blame outside Mm. And it's not that there aren't outside factors, but from a Buddhist point of view, the deep cause of things that happen to us is our own actions of the past. And so that also brings on to another topic, which is important, which is reincarnation. Mm. Because not everything that is a cause of our experience in this life was done in this life. Mm. According to Buddhism, it could have been done in any of a beginningless string of rebirths of time past mm. it's a bit mind-blowing when you first hear it but mm. you know in my case i've been a buddhist for 41 years now and i've absorbed that to the point where for me that's just part of the way i, I understand everything mm. but i was quite skeptic what first. was it what was it, Andy, that got you into Buddhism in the first place? That's a good one, yeah. So um, it was around the age of 29, which some people call the Saturn return, you might have heard. That's just an astrological term, when Saturn's back in the place as it was when you were born, and it's supposed to be like the threshold of a new phase in your life. And it was so for me. Uh, my life was falling apart at that point on two fronts. Um, first of all, my first marriage was falling apart, and that was painful. And I felt that I was falling apart emotionally. And the other thing was that 
um, during the 70s, I was a real political activist, you know, in my 20s, trying to change the world. And around that time, I lost confidence in my ideology, or I lost confidence that I was, that we were having any success, and I just pulled out of it. So, on both on the micro and the macro level, my life was falling apart. So I tried a number of different things. I went to various groups and read various people. And I came to Jung. I found Jung very helpful. And Jung kind of was a stepping stone to Buddhism because I found Jung helpful, but for me, it didn't go quite far enough. And somehow I stepped off from that and went towards Buddhism. And how I got into it actually was through meditation. Because a friend's sort of knowing that I was having a difficult time said, if you if you do 10 minutes of meditation once a day, after two weeks, you'll see a difference. So I thought, well, that's not too much for me to invest, to, to experiment. And it worked. So that led me to think, yeah, there's something in this. And that's kind of one of the main things that started me because then I wanted a group where I could learn with others and it happened to be a Buddhist group. It might have been another tradition, but it happened to be a Buddhist group. And so things just unfolded from there. Mm. And how has how has following Buddhism impacted your life? How have you seen, you know, your life grow from those those beginnings of, you know, experimentation <laughs> to to where you are today? I would say, on one, in, to be very stark, I would say it saved my life because I was, I mean, when I say I was falling apart, it was pretty heavy and I'd lost my way in life in many ways. And uh, I don't know why, but I sort of believed that I wouldn't live beyond the age of 32. And then that was obviously a kind of superstitious idea, but it was quite strong in me. And, um, Somehow Buddhism gave me a deep something that I could connect with. And at first I thought, oh, like everything else I've been into, after a couple of years, I'll leave this behind, you know, because I just thought, well, it'll help me through this crisis and then I won't need it. So I'll go on to whatever's next. Because uh, I had been through quite a few different things like that. Um, but no, it didn't. It was, it was, um, However deeply I dug into it, there was further to dig. And at the age of 71 now, I can say the same. There's, there's, all, there's further to go, and I have the will to go there. So to answer your question again, it's, it's given me a purpose in life. It's also given me a way of being in the world, which makes me much more resilient. Mm and capable of dealing with the challenges. And since I've really got into facing up to the climate crisis and things like the pandemic and, you know, stuff, heavy stuff that's going on in the world, I feel my whole life has included, you know, all my Buddhist practice and study and everything has been preparing me for this time. And so in that sense, at this ripe old age, and I don't know how much longer I've got, I really feel like it's brought me to where I am, which is just the bright place that I need to be right now. 
Um, there was a there was a moment. Um, how many years ago? About nine years ago, in in a Buddhist retreat, where I suddenly had it dawned on me, I have become what I am. Which is a kind of strange phrase for some people, but maybe you can understand what it means. And I realized that up till that point, I'd never felt comfortable in my own skin. I'd always felt that there was something wrong with me. And suddenly I'd had this dawning of a feeling. I, I have become what I am. And also that it's okay to be this. Mm. That was really good. So Buddhism has given me that. Yeah. You mentioned um, a point I think is really worth just picking out um, how you developed a resilience to deal with climate change and COVID. Those are those are big things to deal with. If we were to shrink that down, yeah. could you speak a little bit about the kind of resilience that Buddhism has allowed you to develop just generally in life? Because I know for many people, as we spoke about within the Four Noble Truths, you know, we all suffer. And people have ways of managing their suffering, which perhaps isn't very healthy, um, because they don't have any other tools. Uh, can you speak a little bit more about how you develop the resilience and what that looks like? Well, I'll give you one example. I'll talk personally about, you know, for the last 21 years, I think it is roughly, I've had developing arthritis, mm. which is painful. And at certain times of the year, it's particularly painful. And it's not just in one or two parts of the body. It can be a total physical experience. Um, and my parents both had arthritis and, you know, and my sister's got it. So it's genetic, obviously. Um, and that's just one example of a, of a medical thing, if you like, a condition which through the practices that I've been trained in and do, you know, I, I practice every morning. I now practice for several hours every morning, but when I was working, it had to be more restricted. But through my, my daily regular practices and retreats and so forth, um, I, I can honestly say now that arthritis is my teacher. So then you can say, well, what does it teach you? Well, it, it, it first of all teaches me the truth of suffering. Mm. And I can look at it. What, what, like right now, I'm sitting here cross-legged on the floor, um, looking at the, the camera of the laptop, and my knees are hurting. But I can just look at that pain, and I can see that that pain is just relative to my condition and the fact that I haven't moved for, I don't know, five or 10 minutes or whatever it was, I can't remember. And I don't get hooked into it in the way that I would have done if I didn't have my Buddhist practice. What happens is that when we have a kind of suffering, and that's an example, we get all steamed up and and we exaggerate it because because we we get right into it and make such a big meal of it. Buddhism allows you to sort of just see it, acknowledge it, 
yeah, sure, do something. Like, I'm just going to stretch my leg now. Okay, it relieves it. It doesn't remove the condition. It gives me a bit of temporary relief. Okay, that's fine. Um, I think that resilience is living with how you are or how things are, not just how you are, how things are in your life. Another example. When I was in my first, let's say, 10 years of being a Buddhist practitioner, I was in a family situation, going to work every day, got young kids, blah, blah, blah. And yet, you know, there were people I knew who went to be in monasteries or went into retreat. And I just thought, that's what I want to do. So it's like the, the grass was greener over there. I wanted to be doing that. I thought that that would be better for me. Mm. But, I, but I couldn't. I mean, I could, but I would have had to leave my family. I even considered that, to be honest. Mm. But that wasn't, wouldn't have been at all helpful. Would have been mm. a very negative thing to do, irresponsible. Mm. So I stayed. And then I gradually came to see that your situation is where you have to do the transformation. You have mm. to work on yourself where you are. Mm. If you go somewhere else, you just take yourself with you. Mm. You, you. You can't run away. You can, if you want to, you can face it or you can kid yourself. Mm. And so I think, and we, what we call, we call that the karmic situation. In other words, your karma has brought you to this situation. Mm. Now, be with this situation and transform it from within. Mm. And that is amazing. It works. Mm. If you've got the right techniques, yeah. I was just reflecting upon, as you were saying that, Andy, just how, as a Western society, we are ingrained, aren't we, to look to look away from what's mm. happening, to find the band-aid, to take the drugs, to distract ourselves, to get on your phone, to watch Netflix, to do anything other than be with what is really happening in our lives. And I suppose, you know, Buddhism offers that mirror back to ourselves to keep looking <laughs> that's right that's all it is it, it's not you know it's best just to let go of the idea of it being a religion because that gives you an idea of something out there mm. it's not it's it's a it's an, a journey to the interior mm. i think i always like to explain for me my experience is everything that's arising is coming from within so yes, there are external circumstances. However, two people will see those external circumstances in a completely different way because they have an internal view or filter that they will witness and experience that from. So the only way to um, make any real lasting change is going to be internally. There's a great book, I think it's John Kabat-Zinn, who's it's called Wherever You Go, There You Are. And I love that phrase. I like yourself when my kid when I was practicing Buddhism in my 20s and 30s I had a young family and I was so jealous of everybody that could go on retreats and yeah. go in monasteries and I was just desperate to go away 
and I couldn't because how can you just disappear and leave your children I mean I'm not saying I never went of course I did a couple of weekend things and stuff but there was no real time but in in the end what I came to see was that every difficulty I had I could either duck out and hide or I could face it on and use my practice to develop and brick by brick step by step it chipped away until I I did eventually find a sense of you know peace for however long you know you had that and and that resilience that I don't know that is so available to you when you remove yourself actually being in your life that's the greatest teacher of all I suppose as well, the, the, the situation that we're actually coming out of globally from this pandemic is we've all been forced mm. to have to reflect upon our lives because we've had less ways that we've been able to distract ourselves. <laughs> you know, mm. so for many people, maybe that process has been a very painful one and, you know, it must have been awful must be awful for people that are maybe trapped in relationships or families where they are struggling people that have been isolated from others and haven't been able to see you know others it's this pandemic has really thrown people into a situation that we've never really been in before and the, the teachings that you've mentioned I can understand completely how they could have been very supportive yeah and I mean you know to think globally as you said this one of the things about the pandemic is that it's affected everywhere every country has been affected there's nowhere on earth probably where you could actually escape um, now that is similar to other issues in that it's a collective challenge now I don't think that we can overcome the challenges globally, except through transformation of consciousness. Mm -hmm. Now that that's quite a big thing to say in a way, because generally um, society presents external fixes, mm -hmm. you know, like we've got vaccinations, for instance. Well, vaccinations help, obviously, they definitely help, but they don't solve the roots of the problem. Mm. You know, if we go into the very roots of the problem of the pandemic, it's to do with our relationship with the animals. Mm. And that's connected with our relationship with nature. And actually it's said that it might be something to do with the climate in that animals have migrated to parts of the world which aren't used to them. And so diseases jump in a way that the ecology um, you know, isn't used to and so on and so on and so on. In general, Mother Nature is much more powerful uh, than, um, you know, modern humans like to think. Um, humans have this terrible disease of wanting to control and overpower nature rather than work with it in a harmonious way, the way that indigenous people do, for instance. Mm. And that is, that is that is the disease which has brought us to where we are, the separation from nature and Mother Earth. And in order to, um, to, to solve this general problem, 
whether it's the pandemic, the ecological breakdown, the climate, and also many social problems that come along with all that. In order to solve that, we need to reconnect ourselves to overcome the separation. Um, and to recognize that we are part of the ecology, part of nature, part of Mother Earth is, is the source of everything. And yet, how do we treat her? We just extract whatever we can from her and then poison the atmosphere with it to the extent that we've got global warming. Mm. And of course, we're not all directly responsible in one way, but we're all complicit in a certain way. And the whole system that has been constructed is part of the problem. But the transformation, I think, only comes with the change of consciousness. And it'll only come if enough, if enough people of this globe change their consciousness, then everything will follow, I feel. And I think that, as you said, Daniel, I think you're right. I think the pandemic has been the start of a process. In fact, there's, a, there's a, an idea which I picked up from somewhere, which is that like the caterpillar creating a chrysalis and then its molecular structure breaking down into a kind of ooze, a liquid, it completely changes its molecular structure in order to become a butterfly. The, the, the idea is that the pandemic is the beginning of our chrysalis phase. I found that very positive because there's not, not so much to show you anything positive, but what it, what it means is that things breaking down has to happen. And although that's scary, maybe it's the opportunity for transformation. And for me, that's, fits very well with the Buddhist approach. Mm. Things have to break down in a certain way in order for something good to emerge. Mm. Mm. Yeah, our old structures, our old ways of thinking and our old habits and the pointing of the finger outside of ourselves yeah. has all got to change. And, you know, as you say, it has to be a, a it's gonna have to be a, a number of people across the globe to acknowledge that and start to do that kind of work for us to see significant changes. What I love about the practice is that even although perhaps we're living in very difficult and challenging times, there still is a capacity to find peace within that. There is. Because our inherent nature, as the Buddha taught, is one of peace. Yeah, that's true. So I think that's always a really nice, hopeful thing to be able to hold out to people that Yes, there may be this suffering, there may be these experiences that we're having, but actually inherently, your true nature is one of peace. Don, you're a Buddhist. <laughs> I think I am. <laughs> I know I, mean, I am. Call it, I, just, I, I don't care. To... <laughs> I, Buddhism is just, Buddhist is just a label. We don't need a label. But yeah. all I'm saying is that what you just said there is what the Buddha taught. And it, uh, I mean, Actually, there's a much nicer name than Buddhism, which is Dharma. Mm. Dharma is the word for what the Buddha taught. And because Dharma is not familiar in our language, it's quite convenient because mm. Dharma simply, for me, Dharma means inner work. Mm. 
inner work. But technically, Dharma is the, the truth of cessation and the truth of the path to cessation. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's quite a tall order because, first of all, you have to really understand that cessation is possible because otherwise you're not going to make the efforts on the path. But just what you said there, that our true nature is peace, our inherent nature is peace, you said. Well, you know, you'd said it as if you really kind of know that to be the case. I, I, I would say I do. I would say I, I have had certainly moments where that's where that's been my experience, that yeah. chaos is reigning and all I feel is peace. And that's not to say that there wasn't a deep feeling of compassion for the suffering of others, the 100% that was there. Otherwise, I think I'd be called psychopath. Um, that was definitely present. But what my state was peaceful. And even although I do now still have moments where, you know, there's a tear or I feel maybe some anxiety, I at the same time know that, but this is a fleeting passing through experience and inherently my true state is peace and I can find my way back there quite easily um I, I wouldn't say by any stretch of the imagination I live in that space 24 7 but but I do I, I would say I've had that experience and I know many people have you know it's a it's yeah. accessible to everybody I believe it's a universal it's a universal truth and you know Buddhism is just one way of discovering that probably yeah. But it's a, it's it is quite a useful way. But you know, I think that there are probably other routes. Suffering, but that's for another story, isn't it? I think suffering can be a route. So the the path of suffering. Incredible. Some people mm-hmm. change because of those kind of experiences they go through. Like you know, somebody who's been told you've only got six months to live, mm-hmm. suddenly discovers a whole new dimension, mm-hmm. and lives with the preciousness of every moment. Mm. which is actually how we should all live because we don't know how long we've got no. we just assume we'll go on forever like when you said charlie watts at the beginning i was just saying to sean at lunchtime the trouble is that the rolling stones created a myth that they would go on forever absolutely but, but actually 80 is a jolly good in- innings so it's not mm. at all a tragedy that charlie watts died it's just nature mm. absolutely <laughs> especially you know uh, uh, you know They've lived a life that lot, haven't they? <laughs> I don't think well, they'd expect were, them to carry were, on were... performing as skeletons, wouldn't you, really? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and jumping around the stage. <laughs> Andy, you very kindly offered to lead us in a meditation practice. Um, and I think, you know, for people that are listening, uh, this is a real gift. And I, I, want, I would just want to say to you that if you've never meditated before, don't panic. You know, it's it's a it, meditation is a practice that is suitable for pretty much everybody, and just allow yourself to relax and um and, and enjoy the 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 process. So, I will let you lead and um, talk everybody through it. And thank you for agreeing to do that. Okay, so uh, the first thing is um, meditation is something that you do with your mind but your mind is connected to your body. So the first thing you need to do really is to set your body into a posture that's suitable for meditation. And it's quite possible you already know this, but if you don't, let me just lead you through it. So 
if you're sitting, sit upright. If you're in a chair, put your bottom firmly on the seat and your feet flat on the ground if possible or on something like a cushion. You can also meditate lying down. Um, it can send you to sleep, but you know, maybe you need to, but sitting up's probably better. And then the first most important thing is having a straight back. So bring your attention to the bottom of your spine. And very slowly bring your attention up your spine. And as you go, check that it's straight, like a pile of coins. And stretch it a wee bit. And when you get as far as your neck, then just pause slightly. And so from the base of your spine, right up to your neck, there's, you can have an imaginary straight line. And that straight line goes right down. You can imagine it extending below you through the floor of your room, through the foundations of the building you're in, into the earth, and it will arrive at some point at the very center of the earth. And everybody doing this meditation right now, wherever you are, whenever you listen to this podcast, your lines all meet at the center of the earth. We're all connected. And Mother Earth is our ground. She's the source of our life and everything that sustains us. So feel Mother Earth beneath you and stabilize on Mother Earth. She's very happy for you to do that. And you can feel a sense of gratitude at this point. And now you can extend that imaginary line upwards through the top of your head, through the ceiling of your room, through the roof of the building, into the sky. And if there are clouds, you can go right through the clouds into the clear sky. And it's so spacious in all directions. And this spaciousness is also part of our being. We could call it Father Sky. 
And now bring your attention back inside your body into the area within your rib cage, which we can call the heart space. And just be there in the heart space, aware of Mother Earth below and Father Sky above. and aware of yourself, the child of these parents, seated here. Make your heart space as big as it needs to be and feel the energies moving in your heart space. And when you become aware of them, it's sometimes they're a bit disturbed or volatile because they're connected with our emotions. But just give them plenty of space. The heart space can be much bigger than your body. The heart space can be the size of the universe if you want. And as you sit with these energies, they gradually settle down. And when they become pacified, You feel very connected and comfortable. Content. Peaceful. So gently and slowly come out of the meditation. That was wonderful, Andy. Thank you so much. There's so much I could say about the practice. Well, really well say something, Don. It'd be <laughs> nice to hear. It'd be nice to hear your what comes. Yeah. It was very interesting. The sense of 
connection. I do something similar when I teach a meditation practice where I root to the earth and remind everybody that wherever we are, whatever time we're doing it, we're all connecting to that space. So I felt very familiar. And I think it's important for me, it feels important that we, when we meditate, we have some kind of visual, tangible symbol that we're doing it for everybody and we're all doing it together. That that feels very important to me. And this, this might be a slightly um, bigger subject. I don't know, maybe we can briefly touch on it. But right at the end, as you spoke about the energies, what I felt internally were the winds of karma. Do you know? And maybe you could just briefly say what that means right. for our listeners. Yeah, so um, I know your connection to the yoga tradition and this comes from ancient India, whether it's Buddhist or not Buddhist, it's, there's some similarities and they talk about the chakra system and the energies that move there, which are called winds, um, prana in Sanskrit. And um, and this is connected with karma in certain traditions they explain it like that and the karma sort of induces our experience of the world but it's it's actually connected with our own energy and this also links with um, emotion and it also links with uh, dreams when we take a dream body that dream body is made of wind energy it's made of prana um, and it also connects with speech because speech is a kind of wind, you know, um, air coming up and being modulated and, but communicating thoughts and feelings. So these energies, if you like, are somewhere between the physical and the mental. They're connected with more, more of a subtle level of the, the material but they convey thoughts and feelings and emotions are connected. And we all know that when we get stirred up, we can feel turbulence in our heart or in our belly, that kind of, you know, somewhere in the, that middle part of our body. And also when we get uptight because of we're stressed or something, we can feel a tightness in our heart center. All of this is connected. So doing this kind of practice where you meditate and you enter your heart space. And what I'm what I said is just give it as much room as necessary for those energies to move around for as long as they need and eventually they will settle. It, it, it's very effective. It was really powerful. I don't think I've ever experienced I've had that experience before of it's a different feeling for me than energy the winds feel different to me and that's quite a subtle distinction i think but i've never had it during a meditation and when you said spacious and i kind of almost sat back and took in the view sort of became the viewer i think that's a really helpful term actually to say you know we're viewing we're looking through a lens of our experience perhaps for me it helps anyway uh, when i created that space I could literally feel like a transitional wind, like something shifting and moving, taking me to a new space. And it very clearly felt karmic. I think I would just like to ask you to maybe just briefly say something more about karma. It's something I often have um, quite heavy conversations with people about because they get 
they get a bit upset about the idea of karma. They seem almost like it's um, a punishment or something. Yeah, yeah. And I know that isn't really at all what karmic karma means. Yeah. I think it, it'd be interesting yeah. to hear your explanation. Okay, so karma, uh, the, the, the literal translation of karma into English is action. Mm -hmm. So in other words, karma is what you do. And then because of cause and effect, whatever you do has an effect. Mm. That's not hard to understand. Mm. But then when we talk about long term, then it gets harder to understand. But we can even see it, you know, that something that you did when you were younger might have an effect when you're older. Mm. So we can understand that much. But the idea that something, that these karmic imprints, we call them, or potentials, in other words, some action from the past can go along with our mind stream. And then after we die, can go into a new life and create that. That is hard for us to understand. Mm. And, um, and that is premised on the notion that there are two levels of mental consciousness. There's the day-to-day -day one, which we're using now to look at the screen or listen to the words or think about what was being discussed. And then there's a deeper level, more subtle level, which is actually um, much clearer. And um, it's more like the basis of, of, of our mind stream. And it's, it's taught and I, genuinely deeply believe it to be true that that subtler level doesn't die at the, mm. at the time of our death when our breath and heart stop mm. and for instance I was present when my mum died and the, we were allowed to stay in the room uh, for half an hour before the, the the staff from the hospital came in and we had to go but while I was there, there's definitely her consciousness was still there, even though the breath and the heart had stopped. There was a, there was a, a luster, a, a radiance, a vitality, and there was an incredible peace in the room. Mm. And then went down to the cafe and then came back up about 45 minutes later or something, and there was just a dead body. The consciousness mm. had left. So, mm. Um, I, I personally have no doubt that there is consciousness that goes beyond this life and mm. that came from previous life. So then karma is about, you know, the way that our experiences somehow are the result of things that we don't recall necessarily. Mm. But also, more importantly, what we do now will create causes for the future. So. The positive way of looking at karma is to say, by creating good causes, we will get good results. And you can see that in your life. Mm -hmm. If you're kind to somebody, you know, it, it uplifts you. Mm. If you're generous, it uplifts you. If you're mean, it makes you feel bad. If you get really angry with people afterwards, you feel terrible. Mm -hmm. It's very simple, isn't it? Mm. And karma is like that. A, a, a constructive or positive um, action will have a knock-on at some point. Mm. 
and whereas a harmful negative harm you know destructive action will have a, a negative effect mm. so we're basically it, it means we're responsible for creating our, our destiny it's not imposed on us by some outside force mm. so it's empowering to think like this um and it's not about feeling guilty or bad about, you know, oh gosh, you know, I must have created some terrible karma, aren't I a bad person? It doesn't mean you're a bad person. Nobody's a bad person. From a Buddhist point of view, like you said, everybody's got this peaceful nature. Everybody's mm -hmm. fundamentally good. Mm -hmm. But because of ignorance and mental disturbance, we do harmful things and then mm -hmm. we face the consequences. Do you think... Um... Oh, there's so much I could say about this. I'm, we're not going to talk about it, so I haven't got time, but I'm thinking about epi, epigenetic, epigenetics right now, but that's really for another conversation. But I'm saying, I, I was going to say, do you feel like we have a collective karma as people, as um, communities and human beings, perhaps that have created the causes for the experiences that we're having right now in, in society and in the world? And if so, do you feel that Buddhism can have a positive impact on perhaps changing things so um definitely we all created the causes to be here now in this time that's one thing but we do experience this in completely different ways mm -hmm. so therefore we're not all having a bad time and we're not all having a good time and you know there's many shades but nevertheless what we're going through collectively um, somehow we've all brought ourselves here mm -hmm. to, at this epoch, if you like. And um, in terms of transforming um, the situation, uh, we, we, we are all responsible. We, we, we are all part of the process, for good or bad. We can contribute to making things worse or we can contribute to making things better. That's quite simple. When you say, can Buddhism have an impact? I think that it's consciousness that can have the impact mm. and the transformation of consciousness. And Buddhism doesn't claim to be the only source of, you know, positive mental approach. That would, that is not arrogant like that, you know? Mm. Uh, people, everybody can find their own way of mm. being a good person mm. or being a good neighbor of being a good family member, of being a good participant in the whatever community you're part of. Mm -hmm. That is what's needed. Mm -hmm. You know, one of the nice sayings of His Holiness the Dalai Lama, kindness is my religion. Mm -hmm. He also said kindness is more important than Buddhism. Mm -hmm. that, that's enough. That. That's enough, isn't it? Mm -hmm. You know? I, I really, really like that because mm. being a, a Buddhist, that's not the point. The point is to be kind mm. in, in whatever situation comes up. And sometimes you have to be tough to be kind. It's not like kindness mm. is always sweet. Mm. Sometimes kind, kindness can be quite tough, but um, it's the motivation that counts. Wanting well for the other. Wanting the other to be free from pain and suffering. Mm. Even if you can't do anything, 
just being alongside others who are suffering, like as a witness or as a, you know, just a person who's there. That, that in itself can be helpful, even if you actually can't do anything, and sometimes we can't. Mm. Mm. That's so true. I've, I've had um, the privilege in the past two years of walking alongside a number of people who are at end of life, and there is truly nothing you can do other than be compassionate and be present. And Be present. Exactly. Yeah, so important. Present. And I really believe that I mean, I'm not involved in a particular Buddhist tradition any longer. I haven't been for a number of years, but I do believe it's the stuff that I learned within those traditions that have given me those that skill set to focus really on developing compassion. And I might feel we're coming close to the end of our podcast, but I would like to touch on that. How, how important do you feel compassion is? I mean, it sits very much hand in hand with kindness, doesn't it? Yeah. So... Yeah, compassion is arguably the most important. You could say love and compassion. In Buddhism, we usually say love is wishing happiness for others or the other. Compassion is wishing the other or others to be free from suffering. So mm. they're like two sides of the same thing. Mm. So if you say love and compassion, I don't think there's anything more important, mm. actually. Um, There's a nice saying of um, somebody about the climate crisis, which is something along the lines of, at some point we have to go through despair. Mm. But, the, but the way out of despair is love. Mm. That really makes sense to me. Because mm. love is what connects us. Whatever we're going through, whatever happens, Love connects us, and love also can be the cure. Mm. I just had a thought. I think you've just given me some real clarity in the words you've just said. So thank you. I, I've been. I'm, I'm not feeling despairing, but I'm feeling hopeless about the climate yeah. crisis. And as yeah. you said that, I I had this clarity of the people who refuse to change are fearful. I might not agree with what they're fearful about, but I'm not living in their experience right now. And I absolutely can have compassion for that. I absolutely can have compassion for their fear. Yeah. And that feels like a shift. Right. Great. Thank yeah, you. I, will, I agree with you. Yeah. yeah. That was helpful. That was that was really helpful. Goodness, there's so many more things we could discuss. We're going to have to have <laughs> you back for more conversations. Daniel, is there anything else you would like to ask or add? I was just, uh, since doing that meditation, I've just found myself in a very peaceful place and I didn't feel like I needed to add anything in. <laughs> but it, it, yeah, the, the, the meditation, Andy, I just found, I've, 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 been, I've been needing to feel grounded for quite some time. And much of the practices that I do very much are in a similar vein, but from a more yogic tradition, a sort of tantric type tradition, where again, there's the use of the breath yeah. as the line running up and down, you know, connecting to the earth and connecting to the to the above. Yeah. And I, I, I love the more that you start to study, the more you realise how little you know, but there's a lot of replication 
in these mm -hmm. in these different traditions, especially because of the connection with the geography of where you know Tibetan Buddhism comes from, and you yeah. know yoga being very uh, a South yeah. Asian type practice where it's come yeah. from as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it just felt really settling, and I really love the notions of the idea of Mother Earth and Father Sky. It reminds me of my teacher Uma Dinsmore Tully and how she teaches Yoga Nidra mm. about this kind of feeling held, yeah. feeling feeling part of something that's bigger than you, but knowing that it's there to hold you and comfort you and protect you. Yeah, the more you think about Mother Earth and Father Sky, you can see that all life on Earth is a product of the two. It's not just the Earth because the sky brings about the Earth's atmosphere and the Earth's atmosphere provides the oxygen which we breathe. Otherwise, we wouldn't live. And all the growth on the Earth of plants and trees and everything is connected to space above the Earth. So, you know, somehow it's the meeting of these two that has produced all the wonderful life. And unfortunately, we haven't treated our parents very well. And so we have to learn to be better children of our mother and father. <laughs> I just had a thought, maybe um, humankind at this moment is, is a teenager. <laughs> <laughs> we're behaving we're behaving to the planet the way the children teenagers behave to their parents yeah, but we've Deep got to grow up so we've got, we've got, really we haven't got do. long to grow up now we haven't got long to grow up but uh mm. goodness Annie, it's been such an interesting conversation and i really there is so much more to say but i think for another time mm -hmm. i really think our listeners will have learned a huge amount about buddhism and Perhaps had some myths busted and maybe have some things you can take away and think about because actually in the thinking and the feeling you know create some deep clarity can't it and sorry daniel you're i was just gonna you know for people maybe that have felt inspired by what andy has been discussing with us today how would you advise someone to approach buddhism Well, there are Buddhist groups all over the country and Buddhist centers, and there's an awful lot online. And um, spend quite a bit of time as a tourist, going from one to the other and see if, seeing if there's something that you really connect with. And um, don't stay somewhere where it's not comfortable. And um, if, you find a, if you find a tradition that really works for you and teaches that you can trust, then you can go deeper and deeper there. And it's good to stay with the tradition for quite a while in order to really build the roots and the foundation. And then after, after that's there, then you can look at others as well and it'll enrich your path. Never think that your path is the only one, but you know, if you find something that works for you, then it's, it's the right one for you, especially at that time, that's important. Um, and if you can't find anything, you can get nourishment from a bit here and a bit there. But it can be a bit like, you know, just on the surface, unless you can go deep into a particular tradition, I would say. 
Um, and there are many choices nowadays, so I'm not going to go into them, but you can do some research and you will find that there are lots of different traditions, Buddhist, but also outside Buddhism, there are good traditions. There's Sufism, for example, um, and you, the, all the yoga traditions, which you guys are linked with. And there's Qigong and Tai Chi, and we could go on and on and on. There's, all these things are very helpful. Many of them come from the East, but they found their way into our culture and they're finding new forms of expression. The, the, but the roots are, you know, quite ancient and that's quite important as well, I think. Yeah. They've been tried and tested over generations. Mm. And I, 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 just to echo what you said there, Andy, it is really important that we do uphold these traditions. Yeah. Because, you know, us Westerners love to change things and market them in a certain way and make them more appealing. Yeah. And by doing that, we're watering down the power of actually what, what potentially we could as individuals and as a collective get out of them. That's very true, Daniel. I agree. We always end our podcast by asking our guests what they do to look after themselves. So what's your, maybe it's your practice or maybe there's something else that you do. What do you do regularly to sort of keep your self-care on point? Well, when I very first started in Buddhism, I was living on my own and I just used to, immediately I woke up, I sit up on the pillow and do 10 minutes meditation. And it's something similar now, except that I get up and I'd actually go to the bathroom and have a shower and everything first. But once I've done that, I go straight to the cushion and I do my morning practice. And because I'm retired, it can be much longer now. But the main point is to do some practice first thing to set you up for the day. That I think that's the, that's for me that's that's the thing that sustains me. Thank you. I echo. I echo, and I think Daniel would as well. That 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 idea of first thing as soon as you can, you know, setting the tone for how you want your mind to feel for the rest of the day. So, yeah. Thank you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Andy, for being here today. It's been a real pleasure, and just. Yeah, just it's given me an awful lot to think about, a lot to process and clarified some things for me as well. So I'm really grateful for what you shared today. Well, I'm very grateful that you invited me and I've really appreciated our chat. And if anybody listening to or watching this benefits, then I'm extra pleased. So good luck, whoever's listening and, um, you know, go from strength to strength and never give up. Mm. So true. Thank you, Andy. And thank you, everyone, for listening today. Um, it's been a pleasure to be here with you. And thank you to Dawn for leading us through the conversation. Um, please do let us know if you have any feedback about what we've discussed today, if there's anything else you'd like to know, or if there's other people that you would like us to have conversations with. We're really open to hearing feedback and allowing us to grow from this podcast into something that is receptive and interesting for you. So until next time, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Dawn. And thanks for listening.